Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BX138, Feminism, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 248, August the 5th, 1991. Otto Scott and I are now going to discuss the subject of feminism. This is a very important subject in our time, especially because we have such a militant movement that has been in action since Betty Friedan wrote her book, The Feminine Mystique. Now, at the time it was written, no one would have envisioned what came out of that book because so many of us read it and found it laughable. The same was true of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Both books were full of so many absurd statements, so much nonsense, that it was hard to believe that out of them could come the militant movement that arose. And, of course, it was marked by the absurdities that are almost too many to name. I know that uh, at one time when I was at the California State Senate talking with one of the senators, in his office, and he told me of the really crazy bills that some of the feminists were trying to get him to introduce, and he was ticking them off and ordering them out of his office, but he said they get introduced all the same. And I said, why don't you go the one better? Carry it to the point of absurdity. Uh, have a bill introduced that will make it illegal for women to have babies until men also can do the same. And he said, Rush, I wouldn't dare. It would pass. There are too many feminists who would uh, fight for that bill immediately <laughs> because, after all, they go through the valley of the shadow of death to have a baby, and why shouldn't men suffer similarly. Yeah, we'll be reduced to sperm banks pretty soon. <laughs> so it has reached the point of absurdity. And this is not the first time. It's done that before in history. Just in the last century, there was an attempt to translate the Bible, or rather to pervert the Bible into a feminist book and refer to God as she. And uh, the belief was that God had to be feminine because uh, God was too sensitive to be masculine. You and I, you see, belong to a coarse breed. Yes, yes, <laughs> like, like water moccasins, I suppose, or something like that. <laughs> Well, feminism is waning now a bit, 
but is no less militant. Well, its stronghold seems to be, as so many other things, in the universities. Yes. And there is now an entire area, whole sector of books by women. Now, I remember, I've read books by women from the time I was able to read, and so did you. Jean Stratton Porter, remember, yes. uh, and her Girl of the Limberlost, was it? I forgot yes. now. Yes. And uh, Mary Reinhardt. And, uh, Grace Livingston Hill. And, and all kinds of... Produced uh, all, shells. Yes, I, I remember. And I read them without distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them I liked. And uh, it never occurred to me that literature was a matter of sex. Because most of the best sellers, by the way, since the term was coined, have been by women. Because most of them have been novels. And women are very good at novels. And I've often wondered why they're so especially so good at detective novels, depicting how to poison husbands and so forth. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have always looked at the, that whole thing a little bit askance. They're more dangerous than they seem, these people. But but now that they have put them under the heading of feminism, I no longer read them. Yes. Because the whole idea that they reflect an ideology, an anti-masculine ideology, causes me to lose interest in them. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be involved in that sort of literature. I do not believe that women have been less important than men, but I think their contribution throughout history has been indirect. Mm -hmm. Now, the men have held the official roles, and there is no way that you can write history without talking about what the general did and what the king did. Although the queen may have been important, it was the king who ruled the roost and the generals who went into battle. The history of the world is masculine history. And to claim otherwise is to distort history. Yes. And uh, because history barely mentions farmers doesn't mean that mankind hasn't depended on them from day one. Oh, absolutely. But we all know, too, that history... Is never complete. Mm-hmm. That there is no way that the historian could know how one man or one woman looked at somebody else and how in that one glance an accommodation was made, a deal was made, an understanding was reached which had no trace anywhere at any time. So the majority, the life of history is something that we will never understand. We have to go by the letter of history, and the letter of history is masculine. I get the uh, catalogs of a number of university presses, and it is uh, amazing to me how many of the books published by the university presses today are what I would call faddish books. Oh, yes. They're in uh, women's studies. Mm. American yes. Indian studies. Right. Uh, 
one issue, <clears throat> one issue books. Yes. Uh, environmental studies, always by the faddists in mm. these fields. Mm. So that uh, the universities are pouring a great deal of money and time and effort into creating special departments where none should exist and publishing uh, libraries of books that are really uh, nonsense. Well, they really are comparable to what magazine articles and good magazines like Harper's Atlantic were like in the 30s and 20s. There is no more substance in them than an uh, article used to contain. If you recall those essays, they were quite heavy mm -hmm. and uh, complex. Today they're really lightweight, mm -hmm. and the books are either overly pedantic or very lightweight. Yes, uh, if I may digress, I think a great deal of the blame for that goes back to John Dewey. Now, John Dewey was a master of uh, evasiveness. He was a very muddy writer. Well, his idea was to take what, if stated plainly in one essay, would uh, upset people because they would understand what he was saying, make it into a book, a long, wordy book. Someone described him as having verbal diarrhea. And... So much of the scholarship that has come out now in these fattest fields is that sort of writing. It uh, very often has all the pretensions of scholarship. It's muddy writing, as you said, and full of footnotes and uh, bibliography, but saying nothing. All the apparatus. Well, it's had a tremendous effect upon women, and it's had a tremendous effect upon male-female relations. Yes. Now, earlier we were talking about masculinity, and I drew a parallel between the level of a person's masculinity and his attitude and treatment of women. Let's reverse this. Mm -hmm. You can estimate a woman's femaleness, you might say, by her attitude toward men and her treatment of men. Now, we have on the one hand, of course, we have the uh, pervert, the lesbian, or we have uh, on the masculine side the homosexual and the, and the abuser, the wife beater. But I have seen women, and so have you, who have gotten on top of their husbands and like the old witch of the sea and claw at him forever. They won't give him a divorce, they won't leave him, but they make his life living hell forever. That's the equivalent of the, of the wife beater in the female side. There are actually uh, about as many, and some authorities believe more, husband beaters than wife beaters. Well, I but the men are unwilling to report it. I understand that uh, lesbian relationships are often violent, and that many of the battered women come from the butch dykes who beat them up. That's never been printed, no. but it's well understood. Yes. 
the uh, then you can go from the actual torment that some women subject their husbands to to just the normal nag and uh, I'm in charge of this and you don't know anything and so forth and so on. Intellectual abuse in a way. Uh, you recall that book that we both read about the feminization of American literature. Yes, of American culture. American culture. Yes, well, by Ann Douglas. By Ann Douglas, an excellent book. Remarkable. At the end of the Civil War, after the Civil War, when everyone fled into business and the hard sciences, and the arts were left to drift and for the women to take care of. Mm-hmm. Well, this, in effect, put a lobotomy across American men. Unlike the men in any other country, American men came to believe that all forms of art were feminine, including literature. I, in this, this claims to this day, I remember telling a fellow who has a small oil company that I'd written several oil company histories. Well, he said, yes. He said, my wife reads books. <laughs> <laughs> And obviously she had convinced him that women own books and that if he wasted his time reading books, he wasn't doing the manly thing. Mm -hmm. This is a form of abuse. Well, Hegel's concept of the war of the sexes has done incredible damage because instead of men and women seeing that they need one another and can only function best when their lives are meshed. Uh, They see anything that the other does as an attack upon themselves. As competitive. Yes. I mentioned uh, earlier, when we were not on tape, that I'm reading Caper's book on John Calhoun, Opportunist. Mm -hmm. Well, John C. Calhoun was a pathetic man, uh, very important in American history and deadly in his influence. But Calhoun's ambition was such that he sacrificed every other aspect of his life for politics. He lived apart from his family a good deal of the time. Mm. He couldn't be bothered with family problems. He concentrated on one thing, winning the presidency. And that's why he lost it, because he became such a sterile mind. And uh, his thinking... You have uh, to have a lot of friends to become president. Yes. Uh, Now, he was not philosophically oriented at all in his political thinking. But the most common term applied to him by men in his day, his thinking is too metaphysical. Mm. And they were saying this because somehow it was not real. Mm. And the metaphysical they associated with transcendentalism and the eggheads up in New England. Sure. And here this fellow was talking in abstractions. And it was because he had deliberately impoverished himself in terms of his ambition. Mm -hmm. So he was half a man. 
Well, leading women into abstractions about feminine rights to the extent I recall, I get letters, and especially when I was being published more widely, I used to get letters from women who objected to the language, who objected to using masculine pronouns, the word man as a synonym for humanity. Mm -hmm. And I remember on one occasion I wrote that uh, <clears throat> this particular woman who wrote a novel was poisoning the well. And I said the publisher better take more, pay more attention to the cooks. Mm -hmm. And I got a letter, very sincere letter in, in formal language from some woman attorney in West Chicago who took great exception to that joke and didn't obviously know that it was a joke. And I see letters in the Wall Street Journal today and in other publications from women objecting to language, ignoring the thrust of the statement to insist that it be couched in feminine terms. Mm -hmm. And here we have this philosophy that women have been subjugated all their lives. Well, my father... <clears throat> who used to wax very eloquent against the United States because he said that this was a woman's country. He said the women take charge of the boys and he said the wives take charge of the husbands and he said it's not a man's country. Most American feminists would be very astonished to hear that. <laughs> but he could see it very clearly because he came from a man's country. And I see it, and so do you, when you go to London and you see the stores in London, you see that there are as many stores for men as there are for women. And you go into a jewelry store, you see cufflinks and stick pins and so forth for men. I get catalogs in which there isn't a single item of jewelry for men. Not one. Not one. Apparently, cufflinks are out of style and so forth. Uh... We've come to a very strange condition, and I remember I was trying to think of her name. I knew the Commissioner of Corrections in New York City in the 60s, and Buford Peterson, who was running a halfway house, was a friend of mine. He took me to meet her. She was a very impressive woman. She was a little bird-like Jewish woman. She had this big car with a chauffeur, and she was in charge of the Rikers Island Penitentiary and all these other institutions dealing with these very difficult problems. She had been raised, <coughs> like Margaret Thatcher, in an apartment over a store in a rather poor section of the city. And I think when I talked to her, she must have been either in her late 60s or early 70s. And I don't know how we got onto the male-female thing, but she said the women of the United States are no longer taking care of the men. Now, that's a concept which you never hear. Mm -hmm. And yet, of the two sexes, I must say, I think that men fall apart a lot easier than women do without women. Mm -hmm. Whereas women yes. can live without men without falling apart. That's right. Of the two sexes, one needs more support than the other. Men become very sterile without a woman. 
they don't seem to be able to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's they, a they, rare they, man. They get eccentric. Yes. I've known a handful of men who don't uh, get warped by it. Well, uh, you as surely as I recall when we were boys that men wore bowler hats, mm -hmm. a suit and a vest. Oh, yes. A pocket watch with a, chain. a big chain right. on their vest. And the boys were expected to wear vests too. But uh, they weren't men yet. So you didn't, if you were given a dollar watch, and there were good dollar watches in those days. The thing I hated was but, the knickers. <laughs> yes, I hated them too. Gosh, how I hated those things. <laughs> <laughs> they never... Uh, they weren't good for anything except putting apples into. <laughs> <laughs> they never caught on in California. That they, they were strictly Oh, how Easter. lucky you were. I yeah. had them when we were in Rio de Janeiro, and I attracted crowds <laughs> as I walked along the street. <laughs> Honest, people pointed to me. Pointed me out. Well, when uh, we came back from Detroit to Kingsburg... I got out of my knickers in the restroom and into a pair of pants. Oh, how lucky you were. Before I landed, and I made sure I'd got, I, mean, uh, I had uh, gotten a pair of pants. I my mother sure. held out as long as possible. Because <laughs> she said it would make her look old. <laughs> Talk about women. Carry on. <laughs> Well, I recall one man, uh, a, a Serbian, who told me that uh, when he graduated from school, then he was given a watch, a gold watch, by his father and grandfather uh, to put into his vest. The real a gold thing. chain, because he was now a man. And... He was told what a man's responsibilities are. Well, girls today, I don't know, they're having trouble finding men. Mm -hmm. One of the results of the sexual revolution has been that a premature experimentations with sex mm -hmm. has destroyed love. Yes. And... This has always been true. A promiscuous girl has always grown up without love mm -hmm. or into a situation where she would not have love because she would lack the position of respect yeah. that chastity brings and, of course, the spiritual strength that accompanies it. And this yes. is a very important topic because these young women are being misdirected they're being told that to be sexually active is all right as long as it's safe. Mm -hmm. But what is it safe from? I mean, the idea that you can have sex and be safe is a absolute fallacy. There is yes. no way you can be safe. If you don't get a disease, that's not safety. Your heart can be broken. I remember very distinctly a young woman, young Jewish woman, in San Francisco years ago, who was given a very impressive courtship or seduction effort by a young and very wealthy Israeli. And this was a Jewish girl, very beautiful. 
and she asked the advice of the other women in the foundation where she worked, and they told her to go ahead. Don't be a fool. And she went ahead. And then, of course, he rejected her and went back to Israel to get married. And she was absolutely devastated. Devastated. She had fallen in love with him, and she had assumed all sorts of things which didn't work. That story could be multiplied now by the millions. Yes. Women have been encouraged by feminist propaganda to destroy their own children in the womb and to become promiscuous as part of their rights. Yes. And promiscuity has never helped women at any time, anywhere. No. And we have had in the evangelical churches the same decline of chastity because preaching has become so pietistic it has not related itself to the problems of the world outside the church door. The clergy is not protecting the people. No. It's supposed to protect the people from these traps. Well, Dwight Prade has observed that in most churches, uh, their theology stops at the church door. It doesn't go out into the world. And he is right. Now, I don't recall, neither I'm sure you don't either, a single historical instance of any culture, anywhere, at any time, that tried to treat both sexes the same. Now, we hear now that women are to be in combat. The Israeli army, it's true, the Israelis used women in some, some combat roles when they were conducting their unofficial war against the English to get the English out of Jerusalem and out of Palestine. And in the early days of the uh, repelling the attacks of the Arabs against them. But they very soon discovered that it didn't work. Mm -hmm. It didn't work for the women and it didn't work for the men. Today they have less of a term in the military than the men do. They have different conditions. They're behind the lines. They're in service departments. They're stenographers, etc., radio mm -hmm. operators, and so forth. But they are not combat mm -hmm. troops. And I read an article by an Israeli veteran who went through the whole sequence. Not a young man, obviously. He sounded like he was in his 50s. In his last sentence, I'll never forget, he said, a country that uses women in combat is not a country worth defending. Good for him. Good for him. Well, we are talking about the destruction of a civilization. Yes. Feminism is the cutting edge of a destructive effort against women. You mentioned before the rise of rape. Well, if men can no longer have to protect women, what's to stop them from rape? And the men of the United States are not protecting the women from rape. No. They're not doing anything to the rapists. There's, their wives and their daughters are afraid to go out in the street at night, and the men are not there to protect them. Mm -hmm. 
What can we say about the relationships of the sexes in such a situation? You would think as a matter of course that a man would say, you can go out and I'll go out with you and I'll see that you're safe. Well, we are in the last days of a dying culture and a culture that cannot defend its women and its children is dead. Yes, because you're you're talking about your continuity. Yes. It is sacrificing, it's killing its future. Yes. Who would ever have believed that a million and a quarter women would kill the babies in their own womb every year? Yes. I don't think I've ever seen an example of propaganda and its influence more markedly in my whole life. This goes against everything that women are for. Yes. Well, to refer again to Hegel and the concept of the war of the sexes, it's become so deeply embedded in our culture that uh, a good deal of the humor now revolves around the idea of the war of the sexes. Do you remember Thurber's book? Oh, yes. The War of the Sexes? Right. That was really funny because he took it to it. They had the general of the women on horseback and the general of the men on horseback and they had the battle of the bridge and so forth. In the end, however, he said nobody could agree upon who won. (laughs) Well... It has become a grim reality now, and I am sometimes uh, startled, although I should know better by now, when I hear some women express themselves on the subject, the very intense hostility to men, the idea that somehow men are out there to do nothing but to exploit women. The failure of the churches in this sphere I think is a very very important and sad aspect of the story because there's not enough uh, hard headed teaching on what the family means and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman I don't think there's any on that level no uh, all that you have And now a vast segment of Protestantism is at one with Rome on this. No divorce. In other words, we're not going to face the problems of what constitutes manhood, what constitutes womanhood, what constitutes a family, and try to create strong families again. They're going to put the lid on things and say, we don't recognize the problems. One very prominent man tried to talk to me for an hour saying that uh, the Christian position should be in total opposition to divorce. And I said, godly, 
biblical divorce is the cure for a problem. It is not the problem itself. But uh, the church has failed signally here. They don't discuss the subject at all. No. Uh, I don't recall ever hearing the sermons on this subject. No. And uh, women... Uh, the only things that I've read on this particular area have been very muddy. Uh, Margaret Mead. Oh. Margaret Mead was one of the great propagandists in this area. Yes. Now, she did a study of uh, primitive cultures, as you know, in, the South, in Southeast Asia. And she took several tribes in uh, one of those islands several different in tribes. Samoa. Yes, well, it was... And several others. Several others. And I've forgotten the title of this particular book, but she pointed out that what was considered women's work in one tribe would very well be treated as men's work in another. And she went on to say that in some areas women developed muscle, muscles because they were put on tasks that men had performed in other areas. And then she said something which stuck in my mind and which caused me, I had to think about. She said that there is a woman inside every man which comes forward in moments of tenderness and uh, concern and so forth. And a man inside every woman who comes forward as a warrior to defend the frontier uh, when the woman is angry or attacked or something like that. And she said the great, one of the problems, of course, is that to call out the man inside a woman all the time is to result in distortions. And the same way if you call out the woman inside a man. Now, I thought about that and I thought, now that's not so. Because what she was trying to do was to say that certain emotional responses are totally sexual and that Man cannot be have a compassionate moment without being effeminate, and that women can't stand up for themselves without being masculinized. Well, this is not true. You know that women are very formidable when they get angry, and of course men even more so. And both sexes share emotions. I mean, you don't, you know, the the female dog will bite you as well as a male dog and uh, <laughs> and 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 let's face it i mean we're we're rather formidable people as human beings but what she succeeded in doing by that sort of an argument was to confuse the genders and to confuse the profile of what constitutes a man and what constitutes a woman and there she was just one of a whole host Yes. of people who are redefining the sexes for the American audience. One of the books I was particularly delighted to see was Freeman's book on uh, Margaret Mead and the fact that her uh, work represented fraud and the yes. coming of age in Samoa represented not research but pure invention on her part. Because... Uh, very vividly I recall this. When that book came out in the mid-30s, at least, 
I read it and was totally offended and angered by it. And a girl... Uh, well, that was a book in favor of promiscuity. Oh, yes. A girl spoke very respectfully of Margaret Mead's scholarship. Uh, her name happened to be Dorothy also. And I blew up. <laughs> when I quieted down, she said, I will never again mention Margaret Mead's, Mead's name in your presence. And she never did. I went to her office at the Museum of Natural History some years ago with Buford Peterson in tow, trying to raise money for Peterson's halfway house. And she had gotten in, she had some sort of a foundation grant, and I thought it might fit. And she, together with whom she called Bill Douglas, which was William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court, and she had a an office in the museum, and it was regular professorial clutter office. And Peterson, who was an impressive man, uh, described his halfway house and his efforts to rehabilitate institutionalized people. And uh, she said, well, she said, I, that's very interesting. She said, we will, I will send some of my graduate students down to intern with you. And I said, well, what Mr. Peterson needs is money enough to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. I said, he is really not, his facilities are really not to be used without giving him some help. And she hated me. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm not a fundraiser. But I said, you've been no noted for doing very well at it. Mm -hmm. So the conversation went downhill. Yes. She was a great woman to get money and not a woman to ask for money mm -hmm. well she is one of the uh, spiritual mothers of the current feminists indeed she uh, is movement and her personal thoroughly evil woman her personal history is very interesting she discarded men who helped her in her career, including husbands, mm -hmm. and uh, wrote a series of articles that were basically mischievous in their overall effect. None of these people seem to really consider themselves responsible for results. I was told by someone... Uh, who should have known what he was talking about, that in her later years she dabbled with uh, the idea of uh, women witches and played with the idea as a good religious uh, belief for women well, in their occult powers. She was a member of the Anglican Church at the edge of the village, Greenwich Village, and she put on a film one day, one evening, uh, showing a Japanese family in a great big hot tub together. That's where our hot tub stuff came from. 
And it was a grisly sight because they were the elderly grandparents or something, skeletal types <laughs> sitting with their bones sticking up out of the water and, and, and other members of the family all in the same tub. And then a Canadian family exchanging Christmas presents. And she drew a contrast between the warmth, <laughs> intimacy of the Japanese and the buttoned-up, carefully packaged gifts that the Canadians were exchanging and made it seem as though one was terribly material and impersonal and the other was just wonderful. And I'd always thought that Christmas presents were great, especially if you had to unwrap them, the anticipation and the surprise and so forth. And I left raving into the sky <laughs> and uh, was never asked to come back after that. <laughs> Those were my two encounters with Margaret Mead, both unforgettable in a way. She was one of a whole school. Yes. A whole school. Now, Betty Friedan, whom you mentioned before, is a divorced woman who collected and went to great pains to collect a great deal of alimony from her husband while she pursued her vendetta against his sex. Reading her, I uh, find it difficult to imagine the man who would marry her, but I saw a picture of one. He looked like a normal human being. He must have been drunk. <laughs> Well, the sad fact is that young girls are being brought up with this kind of belief. Without protection. Yes. They're exposed to the world. Now, the fate of a young girl in a big city is almost a uh, cliché of modern life for the last, say, 400 years, mm -hmm. uh, since the French Revolution, and even before the French Revolution. But today, they are sent out into the world with sex education classes behind them, with encouragements to do whatever they like, and now, of course, we're beginning to see some of them who are approaching 40 who say that they have wasted their lives because they've tried to have a career and they've tried to have a companionate marriage, uh, whatever you call it. They suddenly realize that they have no children, they have no partner, or the partner they have doesn't want responsibility. They've gone through a series of affairs and this is terrible, takes a terrible effect upon the spirit. Yes, I've seen some burnt-out women who represented precisely that kind of life. They pursued a career and freedom to do as they pleased, were highly intelligent, very beautiful, thought they were on top of the world because they could command anything and suddenly they were desperately alone. 
Well, you know what happens in the professional jobs or the business jobs. Uh, when a woman gets older, those opportunities dry up. Mm-hmm. Younger and prettier women are brought in. And what happens to the career girl when she's 50? Unless she has made a very good marriage or unless she has saved her money, is not very pleasant to contemplate. Now, in the professorial world, they're going to run into the competition from the blacks and the Asians, the same as the white professors. Yes. Right now, the associate and assistant professors are having a great deal of trouble getting into a job. This is going to be true of the women as well, because to be both a woman and a minority is going to be more advantageous than to be a white girl. Yes, it's a part of the process that Dr. Van Til so powerfully described as integration downward into the void. That's a tremendous phrase. Yes. It's a tremendous phrase. And the thing that gets me is that, of course, we remember when older men were treated with respect. Yes. Well, that's gone. I go to the doctor's office, I go to the dentist's office, and I'm Otto, some slip of a girl, and uh, I've been told, inferentially most of the time, to be careful. But what really gets me is the coldness. They take on an official cold act. They're in business. Mm-hmm. I told you, I think, of the conversation with the girl in my insurance brokerage when I protested at the cost of the insurance going up. She said, if you can do better elsewhere, I would advise you to look around. Mm-hmm. And I've written a letter to Bruce Moore, the head of her agency, to say I congratulate you on your sales representatives because if that's the way you feel, you will not have my business next year. Mm -hmm. And these are attitudes which no man would use in dealing with the public. Mm -hmm. They come on as though they're school teachers disciplining you. And I understand also that women in business today are beginning to fall prey to the victims, uh, to the uh, disorders customarily associated with men. They're getting ulcers. Yes. They're becoming alcoholic. They're having heart attacks. Mm -hmm. They're having high blood pressure. Because if, if you get in the arena, you pay the price. Yes. Well, Rome went through all this. They went into a feminist culture. Their men became homosexuals. And the culture became vulnerable to epidemics and plagues. And it disintegrated. Well, the Persians had it first. Yes. At the time of Alexander, the Greeks said, the Macedonians said, that the best men in Persia were women. Well, even before that, in Assyria, the most uh, militant power in all of history, 
no armies have ever brought more terror than the Assyrians did. And they were ruling the world of their time. The last uh, of their emperors, when a foreign delegation visited and were introduced to the Assyrian emperor, they saw him powdered and rouged and playing like a girl with women of the harem. Mm. And they left saying, we'll take them. And they did. That's interesting because the historians of our day rated Japan as a predatory power. And they said the Japanese smell weakness and when they do they attack. The first time they showed that was when they attacked Tsarist Russia and sank the Russian Navy yes. and defeated Russia. Mm-hmm. And the second time they did it is when they attacked us and defeated our, Asiatic, our Pacific fleet. And I want to say now that the war in the Pacific was one of the most savage we have ever had, if not the most savage. It was a terrible war. Mm-hmm. All the attention has been placed on Germany. Mm-hmm. All the attention was placed on bringing down Hitler. And the sacrifices of our men in the Pacific have never been honored in this country properly. But no. it was a tough thing. Well... The reason for that is they hated and still hate MacArthur. No general ever fought more campaigns and gained more territory with less loss of life to his men. But his politics did not suit the media and they treated him with contempt through the war and the historians agreed and they blocked out all of that. Well, they, our two best generals, Patton yes. and MacArthur, were treated worse by the press than the enemy's generals. Yes. Now, this was the beginning of the argument against men. Mm-hmm. And we didn't recognize it at the time. It just seemed political. But it wasn't political. Yes. Nothing is purely speaking political. Nothing is purely speaking economic. Nothing is purely speaking sexual. Mm. All these factors come together into an overall reality. Yes. Now, the women that I saw in the war, I saw some of the naval uh, nurses. I remember I ran into a nurse in uh, Hawaii who uh, was quite a person. The women played a part in World War II and a big part, bigger part in Europe because they were part of the victims and in the Russian army, they were part of the soldiers mm-hmm. because the Russians saw no distinction under communism between men and women. Mm-hmm. They treated them both as cattle. Mm-hmm. And the Russian women, if you ever want to see the end of the revolutionary effort, we should take more look, a longer look at the women. What happened to them? By the time they were 50 or so, they had these creatures over there sweeping the street, mm-hmm. working in coal mines, who are neither men nor women, but just simply brute animals. Yes. That's the end mm-hmm. of the men and women as alike. Yes. 
I mean, to push American women out into the workforce, they had first to reduce the men's wages so that both parties have to go out in order to make a decent living or what they considered a decent living. Now, women didn't want to sacrifice a living standard and stay with a poor man and build him. It was easier for both to go out to work. So here you have the beginning of what the Russians finished, mm-hmm. but we are continuing it. Yes. Well, there is a reaction against that. There are more and more women who are refusing to work, who are insisting that they're going to stay home with their children. Many of them are homeschooling as well. They are devising all kinds of things to get their families out of debt, to be economical so that two incomes are not necessary because the two-income family becomes very prodigal. They immediately set for themselves a very high standard of living. And very precarious. And a very precarious one. They want to start at the top. And that is waning. And especially among the young couples, Christian girls, they're determined that they're not going to fall into that trap and they're doing some amazing things. Well, that's very smart because the income tax cuts very heavily into a double income. The expenses that a woman uh, entails in clothes, grooming, and just traveling to and from the job, plus the daycare expenses, take away almost all the extra income that they go to work to obtain. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be reviewing in one of the fall numbers of the Chalcedon Report a cookbook. Are you capable? (laughs) Well, no. But it's a remarkable cookbook written by the wife of uh, a young man on our mailing list. And they have taken a stand with regard to debt. And she is feeding her family on an incredibly small amount of money, uh, nutritious meals, and she's prepared a, a cookbook for that purpose. Very good. It sounds good. Yes. A remarkable couple. I, I was delighted with their letter, and then I was happy that she sent me the cookbook mm-hmm. to see what uh, she has done. Mm-hmm. Well, do you buy beans and oats and all kinds of things yes. in, in bulk and cook them? So uh, she's working an economic miracle. And she and her husband combined are working to eliminate debt. Well, you know, when we were young, being poor was a condition that most of the country shared. Didn't feel poor. No. Didn't feel poor. You did not feel poor in those days. No, not at all. You had a suit for Sunday, and you had clothes, you had food, you had a roof over your head. And uh, what more did you want? What more did you need? What more did you have to have? Yes. 
Well, I can remember during the Depression in the farm communities, uh, it reached the point where as men's suits wore out, what they did was to retain the coat because that didn't wear out and they'd uh, use their new uh, overalls with a jacket over it. Well, you remember the two-pants suit, don't you? Yes. Every suit had two pants, two pair of pants, sure. Well, during the Depression, they wore out both pairs. (laughs) They continued to use the coat, had a shirt and a necktie under their overalls. That's when... Time is about over it. Do you have a last statement? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we've boxed this particular <laughs> compass. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.